This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 428, June the 7th, 1999. This evening, Mark Rushduni and Andrew Sandlin and I are going to uh, interview with as little interruption as possible uh, Sam Blumenfeld. As you probably all know, Sam is uh, the leading authority on the phonics uh, system and a leading proponent over the years of homeschooling. In fact, he comes here from a homeschooling conference in Sacramento, California. Sam, it's good to have you here with us again. and. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the progress of the homeschool movement. Well, first, first, uh, <coughs> Rush, I want to thank you for uh, having me up here, and, and uh, I always enjoy my visits. I try to get here at least once a year. I missed last year, but we'll make up for it. But anyway, the uh, conference in, in Sacramento was, was uh, especially good because of the strong, I would say, uh, Christian aspect of it. Uh, as you know, the homeschool movement is about 85% Christian, maybe even more. And uh, Phil Trout spoke, uh, he, he gave a keynote address on Friday, and he reminded us how the homeschool movement began, how the Christian homeschool movement began. He said Christian parents in different parts of the country in the late 70s and early 80s uh, were called by, you know, by God, by the Holy Spirit, to take their kids out of the public schools. Now, this was before massacres, before shootings and all of that, and this was going on all over the country, and these were the pioneers who started the homeschool movement. And uh, he, he stressed how important it was for us to remain faithful to the faith and to uh, strengthen the movement by adhering uh, to the Christian faith. And I think that's the, that sort of set the tone for the conference. And when I, when I uh, gave one of my workshops entitled 20 Reasons to Homeschool, the first reason I said was uh, that homeschooling sets you right with God. And it gives the family the spiritual strength and it enhances discipline because when parents live under obedience to God, it makes it much easier to uh, get children to obey you because yes. then the children see that of course. you're living under uh, the uh, obedience of a, of a higher, higher power, you know. And uh, that that's, very, that's a very important part of the homeschool movement. People don't realize that it's basically a religious movement. It's, mm -hmm. it's basically reconstructing the Christian family. Uh, and uh, creating a new generation of youngsters, of young people, imbued with religious faith and willing to go out and challenge the statist institutions that now rule us. And so I was, um, I enjoyed the, the conference, and of course, uh, I find it uh, constantly renewing, and it, it really, it, it helps your it helps your spirit rise when you uh, when you're among such such people and, and such uh, 
dedicated people, you see. So I, I enjoyed it very much, and when I, you know, I, I reminded the parents there that we didn't always have public education. And in fact, I read something to them which indicates to what extent uh, Christians have approved of public education in a very, how would you say, um, conditional way. Back in 1849, when the Protestants were considering supporting the public school movement, they uh, filed a report in which they said the following, and I think this is very important. They said, quote, the benefits of this system in offering instruction to all are so many and so great that its religious deficiencies, especially since they can be otherwise supplied, do not seem to be a sufficient reason for abandoning it and adopting in place of it a system of denominational parochial schools. If, however, we were to recommend any system to take its place, it would be that of private schools formed by the union of evangelical Christians of different denominations in which all the fundamental doctrines of Christianity could be taught. If it is, however, a great evil to withdraw from the established system of common schools the interest and influence of the religious part of the community. On the whole, it seems to be the wisest course, at least for the present, to do all in our power to perfect, so far as it can be done, not only its intellectual but also its moral and religious character. If, after a full and faithful experiment, it should at last be seen that fidelity to the religious interests of our children forbids a further patronage of the system, we can unite with the evangelical Christians in the establishment of private schools in which more full doctrinal religious instruction may be possible. But until we are forced to this result, it seems to us desirable that the religious community do all in their power to give an opportunity for a full and fair experiment of the existing system, including not only the common schools, but also the normal schools and the Board of Education." Unquote. Well, I think we've given, it, we've given public schools a full and fair experiment, wouldn't you say? Too full. Yes. And uh, the indication here is that it, they went into this thing with great reservations and on condition that this system not destroy the faith of the children. Well, of course, what's happening now is these Christian parents who are taking their kids out of the public schools and homeschooling them, they've never read this. <laughs> they right. don't know what was said way back in mm -hmm. 1849, but it's, it, it's a testament to the fact that it was a conditional acceptance. It was not unconditional. In other words, they weren't mm -hmm. gonna stay with the system no matter what it did. And I believe that the full and fair experiment is over, it's complete, and that Christians have no business putting their children in public schools any longer. That's right. Unfortunately, though, the vast majority of professed Christians still do that, and that is a, a great error. Though millions, of course, are pulling them out, but there's yeah. still many more that send their children to the state school, sadly. Well, you know, that, that's a point that, that uh, that disturbs me a great deal because having worked in this field and, and, and watched the growth of the movement, and certainly it's grown tremendously. I remember 10 years ago when we had our first homeschool 
convention in Massachusetts, we had about 300 parents show up. And uh, this year, we're about 3,000. So we know it's growing, yes. but still it represents a very small percentage. But I told the parents there, I said, you don't have to be the majority to prevail. That's right. You have to just be a very strong minority that knows what it wants because right. the majority don't know what they want. The majority right. are, you know, they haven't a clue as to what is really needed. Right. And so a strong, uh, dedicated minority can prevail in such a situation. And that's what we have to hope for. And that's what we have to work toward, I believe. Despite all of these great successes in the homeschooling movement, Sam, why do you think that so many professed Christians still, after all of this time, with all of the evidence available, and for instance, in your books and what Calcine has produced and other people have produced, why do they still send their children, you think, to these, what I call Satan synagogues, public yeah. schools? Well, um, I, I believe, of course, it's because uh, many of them are misguided. Uh, many of these uh, uh, Christian teachers who don't practice Christianity in the schools because they can't, but they attend churches. Uh, they are parts of, they're even superintendents, you know, <laughs> who attend church, you know. And so the, the church leaders are sort of reluctant to divide their, they, they know that they would cause problems in their congregations mm -hmm. if they uh, preach that parents ought to take their children out. And not only that, there are those misguided Christians who believe that their children should be the salt. Oh, that's a very popular argument, isn't it? Yeah. It's the missionaries, is. for yeah. example. In the, yeah, yeah, but, in the but is a 10-year-old a trained missionary? No. I mean, and we have to ask ourselves, how many Christian children have been destroyed, have had their, yes. their faith destroyed by the public schools? That's right. And not only that, now we have, uh, it's important to remember that when these parents made their decision to homeschool back in the 70s and the 80s, there, wasn't, there weren't the horrendous things happening that we find today. I believe that Christian children today are in great danger in public schools because yes. the Satanists are given such freedom. That's right. Uh, you have a permissive atmosphere in which Satanists can walk around the schools with their dark, mm -hmm. their black trench coats and their strange signs and uh, the authorities think nothing of it. That's right. And we know of children, Christian children, who have been killed because of their Christian faith That's in the right. public schools. Evil is becoming more fearless, isn't it? Well, yeah, schools? because yes. you, you see, now what is the response of the educators and of the government? More gun laws. Nothing is said about, well, what is it that they're teaching that's creating that's these right. Satanists and these nihilists and these barbarians that's and right. these pagans in the public schools? There's something being taught. Uh, you couldn't have that when I was going to school because our principal actually read the 23rd Psalm at assembly back in the 1930s. <laughs> you could do that. But now, you, but now Christianity has been expunged from the public school curriculum. You, you know, We're and not even told the truth about some of these school shootings. That's right. That they were deliberately shooting Christians. In the most recent, they were asking the... the uh, uh, students at Littleton 
are you a Christian, and then shooting them. Yes. And there is some good evidence, too, and this has been suppressed in the major press, that the group involved, at least some of them, were, were homosexual. Uh, some of the earliest yeah. ones, students who were interviewed, said that on public TV, but that went in the interviews, but that was right. quickly shut up, of course. Well, you know, there's so much wrong with them. There were so many things wrong with them that that's just, you know, uh, more of the same. I mean, that the whole thing is, is a, a perversion. Yes. A, a massive perversion of every, what education is supposed to be. And you would think that educators would see the relationship between the expulsion of Christianity and the faith from public schools, as it was even you know, in the 40s and 50s to a limited degree right. on the one hand, and all of the evil, the pervasive evil on the other. You'd think they'd recognize there's some cause and effect relationship there, but they never do. The only well, cause and effect relationship they want to recognize is that we have to get rid of guns from our society. <laughs> right. And if we got yeah. rid of the guns, there wouldn't yeah. be any problems in our schools anymore. Yes. It's uh, ludicrous that they'll fall back on, on the, the instrument rather than, than That's right. the um, what we're creating yes. with human beings. Yes, well, of course, that whole gun issue is, is another part of the, uh, of the aim to disarm the American people so that they yes. can be... You know, yes. You know, years ooh. ago, Rush wrote something. It's just vaguely coming to mind. Didn't you write, Rush, something called selective depravity or something like that? It was a fascinating... Yes. Uh, uh, and I think that this relates to the issue that people are always wanting to find a scapegoat for right. something. and yeah. uh, So they don't have to look at their own sin and the real problem. And, of course, guns are a good example of that. Well, you know, I've been looking into the schools and what they've been doing for years now. And, of course, you've had death education. You've had... Yes. Uh, values clarification which destroys uh, absolute morals they question all values they question your religion and and that's the whole purpose of values clarification okay. then you and then you have sensitivity training then right. you have transcendental meditation which is part of it you have out of body experience uh, death education is particularly uh, harmful i believe to the kids yes. because it depresses them now that's they right. talk about teenage depression well, where does it come from? It comes from what the schools are doing. And, That's right. Uh, you know, this, this, this death education is a very sick business. Yes. They have the kids, you know, visiting funeral homes. Right. Touching dead That's bodies, right. touching human animals. And many of the younger students are, and they're very frightened. Oh, I've absolutely. read stories about some that are horrified at it, and they force them to do it nonetheless. Exactly. And then yeah. they write their own obituaries. They build their own coffins. They measure themselves for a coffin. Can you imagine a teenager going through that, what it must do to their heads? The Bible says, all they that hate me love death. It's just the exactly. epistemological self-consciousness of these people who hate God. Well, Rush put it in a very succinct sentence. He said, the humanistic uh, humanism is the institutionalized love of death. That's right. And uh, that was a good way of putting it. And, of course, that's what we have in the public schools is the humanist philosophy which also goes into, um, uh, you know, what is this business of uh, you know, older people drinking their nectar or whatever it is, you yeah. know, killing themselves. Yes. Uh, what is that? Oh, uh, you mean the movement? euthanasia? Yeah, euthanasia, euthanasia right, yes. Right. So you got and Kevorkian and, and all of that yeah. sort of thing, right? And, of course, he was considered one of the great men by the humanists. They awarded yes. him the humanist sort of ironic of the humanist. year. Right. <laughs> Yes. You know, he's well, we've talked about some of the negatives. Let's get back to the, the positive side. Obviously, the homeschooling movement 
is a is a great godly and positive counterpart to, absolutely um, absolutely because parents are finding out first of all that they can teach better than the so-called professionals yes <laughs> i i was telling the 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 group in in at the homeschool conference i said um, I, would you believe that probably one, not more than 1% of the teachers who come out of the teachers' colleges in the state of California know how to teach phonics? Hmm. I said probably less than 1% know how yeah. to do it. Yes, I'm, that is a very fair statement. It could be a great deal lower. Yeah, lower, less than 1% because <clears throat> they just don't teach these things. Mm -hmm. And now what we're, not what we're headed for is a national teacher certification. Right. And I've looked at their website and I've downloaded all, their, all of their uh, stuff, you know. And in it, there's nothing about how to teach reading. Mm, nothing. Yeah. I mean, they're training teachers to be change agents. That's right. You know, this whole issue of change agents, we live in a society that is changing on its own mm -hmm. every day. We don't need change agents. That's right. <clears throat> and you know, Sam, as you pointed out many times, this idea of using the, you know, the whole word method and all that was, uh, was to a large degree used in old Soviet Russia, and we just sort of picked up the, picked up the idea, liberal educators in the United States. Well, no, <clears throat> actually, it was just the opposite. I mean, the whole word method was invented by Americans. But it was employed then. In, in, uh, in and they use it in Russia, and then yeah. Russia got rid of it. The communists got rid of it because they saw what it was doing to their kids. Yeah, and then and it was adopted by the liberals in, the, you know, in, in this country. And yeah. uh, so th the whole purpose of that was to dumb down the American people, to get them away from being able to read the Constitution, read the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, literacy now is so low in this country that university students, one particular professor reported that university students cannot read Henry James mm -hmm. because his sentences are too long and his thoughts yeah. just mm. are beyond their ability to handle. And he said they're like floundering fish on the shore, yes. you know. A marvelous way of putting it. Mm -hmm. But he said he was surprised that these were the best students yes and they couldn't read henry james and so i tell parents in the lecture that i give on how to how to um, bring up a, a literate child that uh, give their children 19th century books to read mm -hmm. you know with long sentences and rich vocabulary mm -hmm. so that they really learn their language that's right otherwise they're going to be using the dick and jane <laughs> vocabulary right. for the rest of their lives and You've got to develop the mind. Our mentality really has shrunk. The American mind has shrunk. Because their knowledge of language has shrunk, because there's That's a direct it. relationship between the two, and a lot of people don't really believe that and don't understand that point, but it is a crucial point. Mm -hmm. yeah. Today, people emote. It's, it's emotionalism right. and uh, visual orientation. Well, in response yeah. to pictures rather than to verbal yeah. units, you know, propositions. And young people no longer speak in complete sentences. No. They speak in grunts and fragments. Mm -hmm. Fragment, you know, fragmentary little things. And What did one writer call it in the inarticulate society? Secondary orality. Sort of going back to a sort of a jungle sort of uh, yeah, yeah. language. Yeah, communication. And, that's right. And that's part of the, the uh, increasing barbarism. Yeah, and this writer pointed American that out. The, absolutely. Yeah. 
I don't know where it was recently that when I was speaking, I mentioned the fact that uh, when I was in school, my cousin lived a mile further out in the country than we did. We were close to town in our farm. And he went to a two-teacher country school, grade one through eight. Mm -hmm. And in that school, he learned, uh, this was in the 20s, uh, he, he read Shakespeare, he read Milton, <laughs> he read uh, books like uh, Mill on the Floss, mm -hmm. uh, Ivanhoe, David Copperfield, and more. Now, those books today may not, and writers, be read in some colleges, and the students are not capable. At that time, the fact that they were all farmers' children, all likely to be farmers, did not alter the fact that they had to be well-educated. Oh, yes. So that they were fully as literate as college graduates are today. Right. Now, that's how much we've departed from uh, sound education. Well, you know, back in the 19th century, farmers' journals were highly literate publications, mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. intellectual, yes. uh, because farmers, during the winter, when they weren't farming, did a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. Yes. And they loved expanding their minds. That was, that was one of the great things of, one of the advantages of being a farmer was that in the winter you can actually read lots of books, and, and they did in those days. And you when see it even I in was young, there were a great many farm magazines with an excellent content. Now they're virtually all gone. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you see this point in a contrast between modern newspapers and those of the early 20th century and 19th century. Yeah. Oh, how very uh, dull they looked when compared to today's very flashy and aesthetically pleasing, visually oriented newspapers like USA Today. Yeah. Um, and of course that at the time was a very popular publication and sometimes was downgraded for being that, yet by today's standards uh, it was highly literate. Well, you know, it's, a, it's the same even with the NEA's publications, you know, the National <laughs> Education Association. Back in the early days of the movement they had a magazine that, that had articles that were, you know, pretty pretty dense, mm -hmm. but today's NEA publication looks like the National Enquirer. <laughs> you know, it's just got headlines and lots of pretty pictures. And the content and, is no better either. Oh, the content <laughs> is, is miserable, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yes, the decline in literacy is, is, is real in America, but it, at least the homeschoolers are making quite a, uh, uh, an attempt to redress the situation. As a matter of fact, now there's even a movement to, res to uh, restore the Henty books. That's right. As a matter mm -hmm. of fact, that I think two Reconstructionist uh, 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 that's couple, right. Uh, right. The Schmitz, as a the result Schmitz. of my recommendation, started to read the Henty books, and now they're publishing them. Now there's a tremendous market that has developed. They are not the only publishers of the Henty books. And here a writer who from about 1880, I think, to the 
beginning of the 1900s, I believe, uh, affected more people than any other single person in the English-speaking world. A high number of professors, uh, historians, and the like were readers and uh, self-confessed followers of Henty's works. They're remarkable in their historical accuracy, the high caliber of writing, and the uh, genuinely high appeal to readers. Yeah, and, and that's the kind of thing that, that you know, makes you feel very good about what homeschoolers are doing because they are returning uh, to a, a higher sense of literacy, and mm-hmm. that's what I stress in, in my talks. And also they're getting back to the trivium, mm-hmm. to a more classical uh, view of education. Uh, you know, back in the old days, education, the focus was basically on language and how mm-hmm. to think. Mm-hmm. And what you did was you read books and you memorized them, yes. which is something that is not done today. No. <laughs> and, um, but, of course, the progressive educators wanted to get us away from language. Right. To, to the image. Yes. And the image is basically um, pagan. It's pre-literate. It's pre-alphabetic, you see. That's right. And that's what they want the mind of the public to be, so that it'll be, you know, mishmash. And easily propagandized. People that don't read well are not leaders and can be easily misled and seduced by images, whether on TV or books or elsewhere. That's exactly it. And, of course, today on television, with pervasive imagery, and now with the Internet, and you're going to have the same thing online with mm-hmm. the computer, mm-hmm. but as I've, as I've told parents, I said, uh, the internet will never replace books. No. Because the internet provides information, mm-hmm. data, mm-hmm. but where do you get wisdom from? You don't get wisdom from the internet, you mm-hmm. get it from books, you've got to mm-hmm. read an awful lot, you know. That's right. And uh, at least the homeschooling parents understand this, mm-hmm. and they're receptive, that's the beautiful thing. You know, the, the public schoolers complain that parents are indifferent, that they don't take mm-hmm. an interest in their kids and, and in education. Well, you go to a homeschool convention and you see these parents poring over books, yes. looking over curriculum, and the kids looking over books. It's mm-hmm. just a delight to see this tremendous interest that parents now have in the education of their children. And they're concerned about it, and, and that makes all the difference. So. We're going to get some wonderful kids coming up in the, in the future. I guess now, by now, we're getting those in their 18, 19, yes. 20-year-olds who are beginning to feel their way into the world. Mm-hmm. Some of them will no doubt go into politics. That's right. Um, well, some have. Oh, yeah. They've already done that, yes. They have? Oh, yes. There was a young uh, homeschooled uh, man, I believe it was in uh, Northern California, that uh, I believe it was 20 years old in the northern part of this State, I think a couple of hours from here, that uh, was elected the city council, 20 years old, homeschool uh, graduate. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm interviewed on television. Right. And another great uh, development of the homeschool movement is the interest that fathers are taking in their yeah, families yes, and in their right. children. 
And this is so important because, uh, you know, children need the leadership of fathers. They need the interest of fathers. Absolutely. And that's why it's important for, for fathers to take an active part in their children's education. Biblical patriarchy. Right. And uh, also, uh, I stress the importance of, uh, of home uh, prayer, Bible reading, and devotions, home devotions. Yes, family which, worship. Yeah, family yes. worship. Because those are things that stick with the child forever. Mm -hmm. You know. Now they shape his whole views of God and of life Absolutely. and of the world. Yeah. Not only that, but then he remembers his parents with such affection. That's right. Because his, there's nothing more beautiful than a child seeing his own parents in prayer. That's right. I think that's probably the most beautiful sight that a child can have of his parents. And uh, so it, it's remarkable that in this era of such barbarity and such um, paganism that we have this religious movement taking place this yes. this tremendous uh, movement Sam you've uh, you speak a lot to different uh, groups and uh, you sometimes have problems with people misunderstanding a lot of the terminology that we use as Christian reconstructionists uh, what are some of those terms that you find people misuse or the ideas that, that, that people uh, misconstrue about yeah. what we're saying? Well, before I get into that, let me just say that one of the, one of the real weaknesses of the, the Christians in this, in this society is that there are so few of the Christian leaders who are telling parents to take their kids out of the public schools. Amen. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I have not heard one single... Christian leader on television with an audience of millions tell Christians to take their children out of the public schools. And that is a criminal shame. They'll be held responsible for that. Right. Now, we in the Reconstructionist movement have always favored homeschooling. Yes. I mean, this is something that, this is something that Russia has been preaching, oh, I suppose even before he wrote the, uh, the Messianic... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Character. Character, character of American, American education, education, right. And uh, that there was this battle going on, this conflict between humanism and Christianity. Yes. And it was a battle to the death, that there was no compromise possible. And yet Christians have been compromising and compromising to the point where they put their children in satanic schools. So because as a Reconstructionist, I, I try to stress the fact that we have uh, encouraged homeschooling, and we have told parents that not to take their children out of the public schools is really committing a sin, to That's leave right. them there, because they're not salt. No. Now, of course, then when, you confront, when, they, when they ask you questions about Reconstruction, and they say, well, aren't you, aren't you, uh, theoc uh, aren't you theocratic? Aren't you trying to create a theocratic society? Aren't you trying to create a theocracy? Or, uh, you know, or what does dominion mean? They don't know what these terms mean. I think it would be a good idea, um, Andrew and, and Mark and Rush, if you can explain some of the ideas. First of all, what's the difference between a theocracy and theonomy? Theocracy means literally rule by God. 
It, however, is usually uh, used to mean a group of people who claim to represent God ruling in his name. We don't believe in a theocracy in that sense at all. What we believe in is a theonomy, ruled by God's law, not by individuals, but by everyone believing and practicing the law of God. Now, do you believe that the U.S. Constitution is compatible with that idea? Yes. Uh, you have to realize that contrary to what most people believe, the Constitution only gives us the mechanisms for a government, nothing about meaning or purpose. That had to come from the people. And John Adams and others made clear it depended on a Christian people. Yes. Because uh, what does uh, the creation of two senators from each state and a representative in the House for so many people from a particular area of the state have to do with morality, with religion, with character? You can read the Constitution from one end to the other, and what it does is simply to provide you with the machinery, the mechanism for helping create a free society. It doesn't tell you how to create one. Mm -hmm. That, as some of the early founders made clear, can only come from the faith of the people. Mm -hmm. So the Constitution, apart from Christianity, has no meaning. Mm -hmm. It cannot produce a free society. The Constitution is not greatly changed uh, in my lifetime, but think of the difference in the country. That's true. That's true. You know, uh, Timothy Dwight, the, the president of Yale, yes. back at the time when the Constitution mm -hmm. uh, was ratified by the states, he believed that the Constitution should have mentioned that this was a Christian country, but then I asked you that whole, I asked what your opinion was on it, and you didn't side with Timothy Dwight, did you? No. no, and as a matter of fact, you can hold that legally the Constitution assumes Christianity. It didn't see it as a matter of debate, and uh, it requires an oath of office. Mm -hmm. Now, an uh, oath in that day meant a lot more than uh, it does today. An oath today is vaguely some kind of swearing. But an oath means that you invoke Almighty God to bless you if you are faithful and to curse you if you are not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An oath is a thoroughly religious thing. That's why it was taken on an open Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, if a Bible is used, it's closed. Ah, I didn't realize that. So President Clinton put his hand on a closed Bible. <laughs> well, I didn't notice I what know. he did, yeah. but more and more it's just a closed Bible. I see. Another point that we need to remember is that all of the states had either state churches or some sort of state religious establishment, and they didn't want the feds messing up their state religious yes. establishment. 
had Christianity been explicitly mentioned in the U.S. Constitution, there's a good chance it would not have been ratified. Yes, you're probably and right. See, a lot of people don't recognize that because they think only in terms of federalism uh -huh. and not in terms of the state yes. or of a powerful central civil national government rather than state governments. Uh, well, has there ever been a theocracy in, in, in any Anglo-Saxon country? No. So, so that's, uh, the, that idea really is alien to the uh, yes. to government as far as the Anglo-Saxons well, are concerned. Even even under Cromwell, it wasn't a no. uh, a, a theocracy. Was you there? can say that in ancient Israel, when it was faithful, yeah, it did not look to any man as king or judge to be the ruler, but to God, uh -huh. and it looked to no man's idea of what law should be, but to the word of God mm -hmm. as the law of the land. I see. Another word that uh, confuses a lot of people when they uh, talk about, uh, about the Reconstruction movement is the word dominion. Mm -hmm. What exactly do, do Reconstructionists mean by the word dominion? By dominion we mean that God is recognized as Lord that we apply the law of God, that we recognize that we have been called to be his servants above all else, to bring every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ. Yes. That does not mean by compulsion. It means by conversion. You know, that's, that's the, the big uh, point of contention. They all assume that Reconstructionists want to impose. Of course they do. A, because uh, that's all they know. That's right. That's what they do. That's right. What are they doing to us through the public school Absolutely. system and their hostility and attempts to destroy Christian and home schools? Yes. Why? It's coercion. That's but they refuse to see anything they do as coercive mm -hmm. because, well, we have the truth. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the truth has all rights, and you have none. Yes. Now, do uh, Reconstructionists believe in the separation of church and state? Uh, yes. Not in the separation of religion and the state. And the Old but Testament it's, itself yeah. uh, maintained the separation oh, yes. of church and state, the priestly mm -hmm. and ecclesiastical order on the one hand from the civil order on the other. Yes. But not the separation of the state from God. And Rush makes this point brilliantly in a number of places, uh, but particularly in his book, Christianity and the State, which really deserves a much wider reading and which is available from, from Chalcedon. That, that's a fundamental point. We're often misunderstood and slandered on that point. In fact, Barry Lynn, you know, head of Americans United oh, yes. for Separation of Church and right. State, recently slandered us again on that point, that we don't believe in separation of church and state. What he wants to do, of course, is impose his alien humanistic religion on society, and of course that's what we oppose, but that's a separate issue. Yes, and, and as a matter of fact, they say that in the Humanist Manifesto, yes. where they intend to take over all of, of the other religions. Well, they're ungodly dominionists. Right, yeah, that's yes. what they are. Of course, what a lot of people believe by separation of church and state is that the state's on top and everything is under the state, and the church is allowed a little bit of ground, and it has, but it's separate from the state, so it's a protection of the state from the church. Right. But the church isn't necessarily protected from yes, the state in their right. view. 
So it's not necessarily putting church and state on an equal footing. The That's church right. is usually assumed to be subservient when they talk about the separation yes. of church and state. Most of the are Well, that's it. something that's, that's developed over the years because when this country was first founded, God was sovereign over yes. the right. church, the, the civil government, and the family, and that's the individual. Right. And that's, that's sort of revived in... Um, some of the Calvinistic ideas of sphere sovereignty, which we hold. Yes. Uh, that's a vital point, that there are these separate spheres, not one under the other, but all equally under God's right. authority. Right. That's a fundamental key point. And if we miss that point, some, of course, will put the church, institutional church, on the top. Others will put the state yes. on the top. All of those are wrong. Each of those spheres is independent, though cooperative, though cooperative, right. ideally, in the right kind of state. Well, I know that Rush explained that very well in the idea of religious freedom versus religious, religious toleration. toleration. Yeah, a brilliant and That's article. what we have now is religious yes. toleration. Mm -hmm. And uh, because basically the church is independent of the state, not yes. subservient to right. the state. Yes, it's a, it's a divine embassy on earth. It's God's outpost. Yes. That's right. But uh, it just shows you to what degree our whole system has been perverted to... Yes. Uh, something quite different from what was originally intended by the Founding Fathers. When people think in humanistic terms, they always think in the power of man, statism is an inevitable consequence of humanism. And so when people are thinking humanistically, they think of dominion in terms of political power. That's right. Yes. And so when we talk about dominion, even though we're talking about godly dominion, they think we're talking about some godly political order, because yeah, they right. are thinking as humanists, and they're thinking is stated. They can only think politically. That's Even right. conservatives tend to think of That's right. the answer is to control the political order and then we'll have the perfect society. Absolutely. Most conservatives are also humanistic statists. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, I, want, I have to mention this. One of the Russia's most brilliant insights is the biblical doctrine of governments. And this is a key point here. The main government in the earth is, of course, God's government, but the individual governed by God's authority. And then, of course, there's family government, and there's church government, governed by elders, family, by parents, husband, father right. specifically. And then there's vocational government, government in science, and, and then finally one government among many is the civil government. Well, if all of these other governments do their job, actually the civil government will have a very, very minor role to play. But it's because these other governments have been derelict in their yes. duties that the state has come in to fill up this vacuum. So well, yeah. we really stress these other forms of government, not power by the civil government. But I think you also have to uh, accept the, the notion that Hegelian, the Hegelian idea of the state as being God on earth yes. has infected the intellect of American academics. On left and the right, as right. Mark indicated. So that they yeah. accept the idea that the state is this supreme power because there is no God. That's right. A, this is a pantheistic universe, and if there is no God, then the only expression of, of man's power is the state, you see. So uh, Americans have been totally distorted in their minds by these alien ideas. As a matter of fact, right. public education came out of Prussia. The yeah. whole system was adopted from the Prussians, and our whole system of the state now is based on the Hegelian-Prussian idea. And... Getting back to uh, to 
this idea that we can change things just through politics alone, I mean, that's what's frustrated conservatives so completely. They say, hey, we had the Reagan administration, right. and Absolutely. we've got a Republican-controlled Congress. Mm -hmm. Why aren't things changing? Yes. And, of course, you've got a culture that's been completely taken over by the other side. The universities are totally humanistic. The schools are humanistic. The media is, is humanistic. So... What is the answer? I mean, how do we answer Paul Weyrich and how do we answer Cal Thomas and all of these people? Well, Cal Thedon's been saying it for many years. You start with the individual with, under God's authority, biblical law, training his children, his family, and of course moving outward to churches and moving from there to vocation and so forth, applying the law of God. And then finally, when a number of people are converted and mm -hmm. reconstruct their particular spheres of life, then eventually politics is affected. Politics, basically, from our standpoint, is last, not first. Yes, yes. Politics is a result of godly change in the individual, regeneration, first of all, and sanctification, and then the family and the church and various other spheres of life, and then, finally, in the political sphere, not politics first. Well, uh, you know, that seems to be the, the proper, proper sequence of things yes. that, should, that should occur. Another, another area that is rather confusing to a lot of uh, people, including Christians, is the, the difference between the post-millennium idea, pre-millennium idea, and amillennialism. Can you give us a short dissertation? You do it. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, I'd get wound up and yeah. <laughs> talk too long. And pro more popularly known as post-mill, pre-mill, and a-mill. Yes. <laughs> Premillennialists believe that Jesus Christ will come back before the millennium and establish, a, by his physical presence, a millennium on the earth. Mm -hmm. Amillennialism is a separate view that we're living sort of in the millennium now, but basically it's in the church within the institutional church, or some say the saints that have gone on to be with the Lord. But we're not to expect any what I call a godly golden age, the great prophecies of the Old Testament. But postmillennialism is the view that God has empowered the church to advance his kingdom. By his church, I don't mean institutions, but right. the people of God, right. to advance his kingdom on the earth. And that as 1 Corinthians 15 says, that Christ will return after that's happened, and mm -hmm. that's when the end will come post, meaning, of mm -hmm. course, after, that Christ will come after the millennium. And that, in a nutshell, is basically the, the three positions. Chalcedon, of course, is unabashedly post-millennial. Yes. Well, wouldn't you say that the Puritans in general were post-millennial? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Most Calvinists in the 18th and 19th century were, were uh -huh. post-millennial. Uh, well, what, what, how did this change? What, what brought about this uh, change from a, a general post-millennialist view to uh, premillennialism? Well, you know, people sitting on their suitcases waiting <laughs> to be raptured. And in their robes out on the mountains, <laughs> yes. Right. Now, there are a number of factors historically. One theologically is the advent of a very uh, dangerous and deviant doctrine called dispensationalism developed largely in the last century by J.D. Darby and picked up in the Schofield Reference Bible. Mm -hmm. Not all premillennialists are dispensationalists, of course, but most premills in this century have been dispensational. This is the view that God has predestined the world to get worse and worse and for the church to become more impotent, and there will only be just a few, just a handful before Jesus comes, and that sort of thing. 
Um, the predestination of evil is essentially a watchword for dispensation. Well, what scripture do they base that on? Is there a scripture that... Well, there are scriptures like evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, but they take that out of context and don't look at the entire range of the word of God, which speaks of a world-conquering faith, the Great Commission, for one thing. Yes, yes. Which is called the marching orders of the church that we're called to disciple all nations. Right, right. And that's what missionaries have been doing for, you know, the last 200 years. And the modern missionary movement, some people talk about the one in the 19th century, was fueled by a post-millennial vision. A great book on that is... Um, Ian Murray's, what is it, The Puritan Hope, I believe it's called. The Puritan mm -hmm. Hope is a fine work that I can, I can recommend. The Puritan Hope is a, just an outstanding work. Is that book readily available? Oh, yes. It's Banner of Truth published it, mm -hmm. and it's, it's not a difficult book to read. And he's not a post -millennial. Oh, he isn't? No. <laughs> but he writes like one. <laughs> well, that's great. That's terrific. It's amazing how hostile people are, Christians are, to post-millennialism. Any notion of hope, they just despise. Have you noticed that, Rush? Yes, For some reason, oh, yes. if there's any note of victory, they just, oh, well, they just despise that. Well, isn't that, isn't that the reason why Christians didn't vote? Christians were oh, that's one reason. apolitical yes. because they felt that there was no sense trying to save the country because it was, you know, it was going downhill anyway, and that, that it was unstoppable. That this is a this is predestined. I once had a dispensational pastor say, "Oh yes, Andrew, I understand that uh, abortion is wrong and homosexuality is evil and all of the rampant pornography. It's terrible. All of this is very bad, but really, it's good because that means Jesus is coming soon." That was a common line of reasoning um, twenty years ago. You heard that all over the place. It's less common. It, today. It's less common, but it was you know, you know, praise God, things are this evil it means Jesus are coming. Right. is coming soon. Yeah. Uh, a horrible, horrible yeah, commentary on the yeah. on the state of the Christian church and their thinking. Yeah. Yeah. But it was very common. And it still is, unfortunately, in some uh, in in some quarters. But um, I, I have to say, and don't want to toot our own horn much here, but basically, it was the result of. Russia's work, the post-millennialism has had such a revival mm -hmm. in this century. And I it mean, there were others like Lorraine Bettler and Marcellus Kick and g very good men. It offers answers. It, o it offers mm -hmm. something other than this comic book eschatology or defeatism. Yeah. That's right. It wasn't until I encountered Russia's writings that I really did have that kind of hope. And mm -hmm. that's what it gives, Rush, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It gives hope for the future. Well, I would say that when it comes to homeschooling, uh, they're full of hope. They're yes, doing something. Right. They're point. building families. Mm -hmm. And in fact, homeschoolers tend to have more children, certainly more children than humanists. Humanists right. are sort of killing off theirs. Right. So there's a sense of there's hope almost and a, there's a sense of the future. There's almost an implicit post-millennialism. Yes, it needs to implicit. Become, it needs to become explicit. Right. Because um, uh, there is no explicit... Uh, theology that the homeschoolers espouse. I mean, they're, they're Christian, right. and they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible, but I don't think that they're on such issues as post-millennialism and premillennialism that they have actually formulated anything but no. implicitly, yes. they are acting as if they were post-millennialists. There's no doubt about it because of their sense of the future. They do have that as they build their yes. families. 
That I believe that to the future. I believe Rush even said that homeschoolers, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Rush, but homeschoolers, you've said, have taken the first step in Christian reconstruction. Yes. The interesting way of putting it, by breaking with the philosophy around them, as, as Van Til said in his excellent book on, on Christian philosophy of education, his excellent chapter on that. We have to break away from the pervasive secular philosophy around us in his chapter on antithesis and education. Yeah. So they're, they're almost implicit reconstructionists. Well, taking they do control that. of their children and also their, their responsibility of their children, you mm -hmm. see, rather than passing it off to the state. That's, and they need that's to be, the first step. And they need to be fueled with the theology and vision of postmillennialism. Uh, and uh, Sam, I know that you uh, attempt to do that, and that's what we at Calcedon attempt to do. They need to understand the logical consequence of what they're doing is essentially postmillennialism, and they shouldn't draw back from that. No, they shouldn't, but, but they probably don't But express it in explicit terms. Of course. Though, you see, because right. they know they'll be <laughs> criticized, or then there'll be controversy over such, a, such an issue, but it really isn't an issue, because no. they are in spirit and in everything they do. They're postmillennial in their uh, thinking. They have to be in order mm -hmm. to be homeschoolers. And the faith itself is an inherently victorious... I mean, you can't read the book of Revelation, which is the most post-millennial book in all the Bible. Uh -huh. uh, how dispensationalists can interpret it otherwise, I've never been able to understand. It's, yes. What is the origin of the word dispensationalist? What's, what are they dis, dispensing from? Uh, well, it does appear in our English translation, you know, but it basically it is the idea that God works with different people at different times and in different ways uh -huh. and largely it goes back to the old heresy of Marcion you know mm -hmm. that the Old Testament is essentially inferior the God of the Old Testament is really not the God of the New Testament you know and many of them would not go that yes. far but in essence uh -huh. that's that's basically their way of thinking uh -huh. and it's a very dangerous yes. they don't recognize the unity of the Bible and the unity of God's work in history now of course the reconstruction movement is often referred to as Chalcedon what is the meaning of the term Chalcedon? Well, I could answer that, but I think since Rush started it, maybe he should uh, answer it. In the year 451 A.D., okay. uh, the Council of the Christian Church met, and at that council they defined the nature of Christ as truly God and truly man, two natures in perfect union without confusion. They thereby... Uh, forestalled any man, any church, any government, or any movement declaring itself to be the incarnation of God. God has one unique incarnation. So it made for the exclusiveness of Christ and of Christianity. It has been uh, the decisive uh, work in the history of uh, the world, really. And it's a sad fact, and one reason for our decline, that the churches no longer pay much attention to Chalcedon. Mm -hmm. uh, the great statements of the faith were first the Apostles' Creed, uh, second the Nicene Creed, and then uh, a generation or so later, the Council of Chalcedon and its formula of the faith. 
Our time is up. Thank you, Sam. It's always a pleasure to have time with you, and we're very grateful for your comments. Thank you very much, Rush.